to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. It's funny how two years ago, when the Republicans fielded 17 candidates in the presidential race, the Democrats thought it was a huge joke and ridiculed this record slate of candidates. But the field of Democrat candidates for president in 2020 is even larger and still growing. At last count, it had reached two dozen, and they're not done yet. Not so funny now, huh? Deadly serious, in fact. Welcome to the News Magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. So the Democrats have loaded the slates with 24 candidates from 17 states. They're competing with each other on every point of policy, opinion, and program. Some of them are pushing hard to the left. Others, like Joe Biden, are trying to be more centrist. Even though the first contest, the Iowa caucus, won't take place until February 3, 2020, nine months from now, Nevertheless, every candidate is making Iowa an important stop. It's been going on for several months now. And they are competing with each other on their far-left platforms, which I have to say are resonating with their relatively small audiences. So how far left can they go? Well, Pete Buttigieg wants to erase the name of Thomas Jefferson from American history because he said, it's the right thing to do, unquote. Like all proper Democrats, Betajeg wants four new tax hikes, a higher marginal income tax, a reasonable wealth tax, a financial transaction tax, and he wants to close corporate tax loopholes. Now, Cory Booker is pushing hard on his mission to tighten gun control measures, and he's calling for a national gun licensing program which would force Americans to apply for five-year licenses. He also wants a three-year pilot program that gives um, 15 local areas around the country funding to provide all residents with a job paying at least $15 an hour. That You got to think about that one. And he proposes a newborn baby savings account, which will be seeded, of course, by the federal government with $1,000 each in order, he says, to close the racial wealth gap. Not quite sure how that works out. Kirsten Gillibrand said she would only nominate federal judges, quote, who will commit to upholding Roe v. Wade as settled law and protect women's reproductive rights. Although I'll say later in the program, abortion has nothing to do with women's reproductive rights. It has to do with taking away the rights of the developing baby and depriving it of the right to life. However, we'll get to that later. Elizabeth Warren was the first presidential candidate to call for the impeachment of President Donald Trump. Now, she's proposed a 2% tax on wealth exceeding $50 million and 3% tax on wealth above $1 billion. She supports debt relief on $640 million of student loans to be paid for, of course, 
by the wealth tax. She also proposes universal tuition-free college and a plan to replace the electoral college with a national popular vote. In that way, she will disenfranchise middle America and all the states with small populations like Vermont, Montana, Iowa, and so forth. This is exactly what the founding fathers were determined to avoid. Now, she lives in Massachusetts, where a lot of this all began, and these, these policies were formed. Okay, Bernie Sanders has a long agenda, but then he's had a long time to work on it since this is his second run for president. His agenda includes, but is definitely not limited to, Medicare for All, the Green New Deal, a national $15 an hour minimum wage, and universal tuition-free college. He has also said that he supports the right of all people in prison to vote. And he qualified that. He was specific, in fact, to include murderers, rapists, and illegal immigrants. His most recent idea was that he wants to ban all charter schools, which he says encourages segregation and hurts minorities. In fact, you know, he's dead wrong. Just the opposite is true because gifted minority kids who suffer in inadequate public schools that do not have the resources to help the gifted, they get a real opportunity in charter schools. And then finally, for the time being anyway, there's Bill de Blasio, currently mayor of New York City, whose experience is only exceeded by his incompetence. And he wants to promote his plan to reduce carbon emissions by 40% by 2030. He wants also to ban styrofoam in New York City to be followed by banning plastic straws. Honestly, banning straws is a whole lot easier than banning styrofoam, but that's another story. And and as we have mentioned before, he wants to retrofit every building in Manhattan and cover up all of New York City's steel and glass buildings in order to limit their output of greenhouse gases. I could go on, but I think I've made my point. There is a bunch of silly stuff going on. As the Democrats unroll their campaigns, they're honestly, they're honestly a lot of funny stuff in there. So um, I hope you're enjoying this because um, the comedy's going to go on for quite a while. We have still have a year and a half before the elections. Well, when we looked at the Republican lineup in the last presidential election... It was pretty impressive, actually. Among the candidates were some lightweights like John Kasich and Jeb Bush, despite his illustrious family. But there were also more substantial candidates like Lindsey Graham, Ted Cruz, Mike Huckabee, and Carly Fiorina. In the end, they were all outmatched by Donald Trump. He commanded every stage he stood on, and he marginalized his opponents with unflattering nicknames and, of course, he eventually won the election. It will be interesting to see, first of all, how the next 17 months play out. First with the caucuses and the primaries, and then once the American people have finally sorted out the long list of candidates in the primaries, and there is only one Democrat running against the president, how that one will fare under the withering sarcasm of Donald Trump. To be perfectly frank, I'm not convinced that there is anyone on that list who can effectively stand up to the president's sharp tongue and caustic nicknames. But we'll have to wait and see about that.
The larger question is going to be whether the record of the last two years will be enough to convince the American people that Donald Trump deserves another four years. Let's look at what he's been doing since he became president. He has reversed a failing economy that is now breaking all kinds of records for achievement and resiliency in spite of a Congress that has refused to cooperate with any of the president's priorities. When he came into office, manufacturing in the United States was failing and the GDP was just 1.6%. President Obama said we'd better get used to that. That's the new normal. Only guess what? Today, the stock market is nearly at an all-time high, and in July 2018, the GDP reached 4.2%. President Trump has also initiated a series of trade discussions with Canada, Mexico, Japan, Europe, and China, with an aim to arriving at a fair, tariff-free agreement with each one of these. Some of them are near completion and some are more problematical and the negotiations are still going on, which is not surprising. These agreements are very complex and often takes years to complete. And there are cultural misunderstandings that are not only common, but they're expected and they have to be overcome. That's what's happening with China. And it may take some time to sort out but I believe it will be sorted out, and I do believe we will have an agreement with China that is satisfactory to both sides. Donald Trump has also addressed troublesome conflicts that could lead to war in the Middle East, but he's addressed them by standing up with determination and from a position of strength. And that, my friends, is the only diplomacy that is understood in that part of the world. He has also shown growing support for Israel. And he has kept promises that many presidents before him had failed to keep. And here's what he did. He made history multiple times by recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, by moving the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, by recognizing the Golan Heights as a part of sovereign Israel, by taking on the world on behalf of Israel in the United Nations, where Israel is hammered almost every day and by keeping the promise of a new peace plan for the region. That, that peace plan is coming soon. And finally, in keeping with the centerpiece of his presidential campaign, he has started to build the barrier on the southern border that he promised to secure our southern border and stop the massive flow of illegal immigrants, drugs, and human trafficking. Now look, these are only some of his accomplishments and it's a lot, it's actually quite a long list, but it's a lot for a president who's been fighting such a lonely battle against a host of people in a government establishment, most of whom want him gone. The Democrat party is fighting for its life. It's mired in corruption and tortured by hate. It has, as every analyst worth his salt has repeated ad nauseum, never accepted that Hillary Clinton lost the 2016 presidential election and she holds Donald Trump not only responsible but liable for that loss. In fact, she has blamed a lot of people, white women, white men, and just about everybody else she can think of except the one who most clearly deserves it, the one she sees in the mirror every day. The kindest of the Democrats want to defeat Trump in 2020. 
the most rabid want to impeach him, or worse, much worse. So instead of the model of the time-honored American tradition in which the loser concedes graciously and moves on, the Democrats have chosen a model in which the losers refuse to accept their loss, blame everybody else but themselves, and when the deplorable corruption that they engaged in throughout the campaign, when that begins to surface, they strike out at everyone who poses a threat to their personal power, and they dig deep into their bag of tricks, using every loophole and even going beyond the law to achieve their goal, which is the destruction of their opponents and their accession to what they consider is their rightful place in government, being in power. That means in the White House, in the House and Senate, in the Supreme Court, and the lower courts as well, and in state and local government. Who was it who said that power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely? Actually, although there is some mild controversy about it, most historians will tell you that that sentence was written by Lord Acton, a British historian who lived in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. And if ever proof existed to illustrate that point, we have only to look at how the Democrat Party has behaved over the last few decades and how thoroughly corrupt they have become. This is the swamp that candidate Donald Trump warned us about. We are now looking at a Democrat party that is more than willing to bend the rules, break the law, humiliate a host of prominent people, and make a mockery of what was, not that long ago, a proud nation. I'm heartened by the words of Attorney General William Barr, who has committed himself to uncovering some of that corruption that was revealed as a result of the Mueller report. The Mueller Commission knew about the phony and totally fictitious dossier that was basis for their investigation, and yet even though it was used as evidence to justify the FISA warrants that were then used to spy on Americans, they chose to ignore it, and then they simply dropped the ball. They didn't find the president or his campaign guilty of collusion, or of obstruction of justice for that matter, how could they, without also using the now-exposed dossier, the so-called evidence that was at the heart of the whole investigation? They just took the easy way out. So now Attorney General Barr, because he wants to uncover all this corruption, is facing the anger of the Democrats, whose dirty laundry is about to see the light of day. And the American people will know exactly what they've been up to. So that is what brings us to now, when Congressman Jerry Nadler is threatening the U.S. Attorney General, the highest lawyer in the country, with jail time if he does not break the law. You just can't make this stuff up. It is funny beyond words, except that it is so serious because the future of our country depends on it getting cleaned up. And then there's Nancy Pelosi, who refuses to do her job and continues to block the president in every way she can. Democrats throughout the country are demonizing Republicans and conservatives wherever they can. In short, the Democrats have lost their focus, and some would say they've lost their minds. For certain, they have forgotten how to do their jobs. So getting back to my original premise, the Democrats are panicking and grasping at straws, no, not plastic ones, and at anything that will help them retain the power that they have been misusing for decades. So in my view, here is their problem as they plan for 2020. 
They are counting on the output of skewed polls and biased analyses to predict a positive outcome that they want for the elections in November 2020. But they are ready to depend on polls and analyses to predict the results they want. And they are so busy demonizing the president and his team, they're missing the big picture. When any one of the 24 candidates holds a rally, he or she has an audience of a few hundred people, maybe a thousand or more. Bernie Sanders is the only one who comes close to the more impressive numbers that are in the thousands. But when Donald Trump holds a rally, his audience is an overflow crowd of 10 or 12 or 14,000 people, depending on how many the hall can hold. For example, he recently held a rally in Michigan. The organizers received over 100,000 RSVPs, and most of them had to be told not to come. In the end, the stadium was filled to overflowing with more than 13,000 people, and thousands more stood outside. This wasn't an isolated incident. This happens every single time Donald Trump holds a rally, wherever it happens to be. My point is that Donald Trump commands the mainstream. This is not what the media wants you to know, but it is mainstream America that is his base, and that is the heart of America. These are the people who will come out and vote for Donald Trump because they want him to make America great again, and they want to be part of it. And now they know what President Trump can actually do. They know that he will fight for them. Many of them have jobs now because of him. Many of them have a little more in their paychecks because of him. But the Democrats don't want to acknowledge that there is such a huge grassroots base. It doesn't show up in the polls, and it doesn't show up in the statistics. But it will show up in November 2020. Over the next year and a half, the Democrats will either have to get their act together, which in my view is not likely, or they will lose dramatically in 2020. And if I'm wrong, if the Democrats are able to pull that rabbit out of their hats, then America is in for a long and bumpy ride downhill. I'm sticking to my version. My money is on the president and the reascendancy of America, Reagan's shining city on the hill. We're going to take a short break now, but stay right where you are because I'll be right back with a story about history being made today in Alabama and Missouri. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world to unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. News blogs, informative podcasts, and entertaining videos. It's AmericaOutloud.com, where the conversation never ends. With 24-7 streaming on our free apps on both Android and Apple. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. I'm going to ask you to go to thewoundedblue.org. That's www.thewoundedblue.org. That is the website for the organization that is the National Association for um, Injured and Disabled Police Officers. It is a support organization for these men and women who have given so much in the line of duty. We desperately need your help to raise money to uh, get this this movement going. And uh, if you are a GoFundMe-er, go to GoFundMe, look up the Wounded Blue, and you can give there as well. 
But check it out, please, and also check out our film, The Wounded Blue, on Amazon.com. There is something happening in our country that we need to stay awake for. It's about how we look at life, at the beginning of life, and what we think it's really worth. The clash between left and right is moving to center stage on the issue of abortion. And we all need to pay attention because the outcome may well signal where our country is going next. On May 16th, the Missouri State Senate was the latest legislative chamber to pass the groundbreaking pro-life bill that they called Missouri Stands with the Unborn Act. The legislation passed by a vote of 24 to 10 and was signed into law. It bans abortion after the detection of a fetal heartbeat. Similar bills were passed in the last few months in Louisiana, Mississippi, Arkansas, and Ohio. Georgia also has a fetal heartbeat law. Despite the threat by actress Alyssa Milano to spearhead a boycott of the whole state by Hollywood. My gosh. They did it anyway. Utah and Kentucky also passed similar laws, but they were blocked by federal judges who stopped them from being enforced. Now, the first state to pass a fetal heartbeat bill was Iowa, which passed its law just a year ago. The Iowa bill was also struck down, this time by an Iowa state judge who ruled that it violated the state constitution. Iowa's governor, Kim Reynolds, said on learning the news, she said, I'm incredibly disappointed in today's court ruling because I believe that if death is determined when a heart stops beating, then a beating heart indicates life. Unquote. And that pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? These laws are in stark contrast to a bill that was passed in New York State in January. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, a Democrat, signed this bill into law. It was inappropriately named Reproductive Health Act, and it allows unborn babies to effectively be killed right up until the moment of birth without any serious consequences. The new Reproductive Health Act replaced a previous law that set a 24-week limit after which abortions would be illegal. The new law keeps the 24-week limit, but adds a provision. Now listen to this. For abortions at any time if A, the baby would not survive the birth, and B, if it is necessary to protect the mother's life or health, which could be a highly subjective call. The law also decriminalizes abortion by regulating it under the public health law, not penal law. So it's now a misdemeanor, not a felony. Now think of that. The doctor can decide that an abortion during childbirth might endanger either the baby or the mother's life and then abort the baby about to be born, a full-term baby about to be born. And after the bill was passed, the members of the chamber stood up and cheered. I don't know about you, but I was outraged. Look, the dramatic divide that has separated liberals and conservatives on the issue of abortion has gone on for years. 
but it's never been greater. And since the Democrats have been pushing so aggressively for abortion until birth legislation and abortion on demand, a pro-life counter-movement has been stimulated and there is new activity around the country to overturn Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade says that states can regulate or even prohibit abortion after the point of fetal viability, 24 to 28 weeks, so long as they make an exception for abortions that protect the mother's life or health. So let's take a look at the issue for a moment. Abortion. That means, plain and simple, taking the life of an unborn child while it is still in utero, in the womb. The crux of the matter is whether the unborn child is a human being when its life is ended. One of the big debates going on in America today regarding abortion is this. When does an unborn human become a person who must be protected under the law? What constitutes a human being? Is it when it's conceived? When it has a detectable heartbeat? When it can feel pain? When it stops being an it and becomes a detectable he or she? Or only when he or she is born? This is the question. When does a collection of cells become a human being? When does a medical procedure become murder? I have no hope that we will solve this problem today. It may never truly be solved because so many people have deeply ingrained convictions that their point of view is the right one. But what we can do is at least talk about the issues that matter. Here's what bothers me that so many people think that this really doesn't matter. And abortion is just removing a complication and inconvenience from one's life. And after you heal and move on, it's like it never happened. But I'll tell you, it bothers me because I'm one of those who believe that life does begin at conception, that life begins when it begins. At that moment, when two cells join and have within them all that they need to spontaneously proliferate and define themselves into body parts and systems until they are a whole human being. Those two cells are the miracle that will develop into a human being, into a person with a soul and an appetite and a sense of humor. So I could never destroy such an affirmation of life not at any stage, but that's me. I do understand that there are many people who don't share my convictions. And that, of course, is where the problem lies, because in many cases, they believe just as strongly as I do. Only what they believe is diametrically opposed to what I believe. They believe that what is growing inside a woman's body is expendable, disposable, and can be aborted for any reason, because it isn't a human being. If having a baby is an inconvenience, if it was a product of poor choices or an accident or lack of self-control or, as in some cases, the result of rape or incest, what is the outcome? What is the thing that is created? And what is our responsibility to it? The left likes to call the entire subject of abortion a function of reproductive health. Planned Parenthood, for example, does that. They call what they do providing sexual and reproductive health services. 
And by the way, their own name, Planned Parenthood, is also a misnomer because their main center of business appears to be dealing with the results of unplanned parenthood. And their solution is ending the prospect of parenthood. They're actually the big player in this issue, although not the only one by far, and it seems to have a highly profitable vested interest in this issue. According to a 2018 report by Drs. James Studnicki and John W. Fisher called Planned Parenthood, Supply-Induced Demand for Abortion in the United States, it was published in the Open Journal of Preventative Medicine. They analyzed abortion statistics over a 20-year time frame. Between 1995 and 2014, the number of abortions in this country decreased by 31% from 1,300,000 to 926,000. Now, as you would expect, most abortion facilities had a decrease in the numbers of abortions performed. But the opposite was true at Planned Parenthood facilities. According to their report, Planned Parenthood's aggressive effort to expand their abortion services actually increased the number of abortions performed by them by more than 300,000. That is a shocking number. So during the same time frame, the number of Planned Parenthood abortions increased by 142%, and their market share of the abortion industry jumped from 10% to 35%. So while Planned Parenthood operates 51.5% of the facilities in the country that provide abortions, They claim that abortion is only 3.4% of their services. That's according to their latest annual report. According to that report, they carried out 332,000 abortions in fiscal year 2017. That was up 11,373 abortions since 2016. That amounts to 911 babies aborted every single day. That number is ironic, isn't it? 911. And during the period of this study, revenue from the U.S. government in the form of reimbursements and grants to Planned Parenthood increased by a staggering 220%. In other words, it is easy to see that the overall profit margin increase for Planned Parenthood produced a result. They shifted deliberately from providing low revenue counseling and contraception to high-revenue abortion, and that accounted for these numbers. There's a new movie out in the theaters called Unplanned, and it has highlighted the deep divide in this nation. In this movie, based on a true story, the director of a Texas Planned Parenthood facility was pressed to increase her abortion revenue. Management had communicated the organization's business model in unmistakable terms. The new director was told, quote, Nonprofit is a tax status, not a business status. You've got to find a way to get your abortion numbers up. Unquote. And when she shows her concern in the movie about managing an abortion quota, she is told, quote, This is a business, Abby. Get your priorities straight. Unquote. Now, although advertising for the movie was banned on the Hallmark channels and HGTV and others, it managed to be the number five movie just days after it was released on March 29th. It was produced on a $6 million budget, and by the end of April, the film had grossed some $17 million. 
The language of abortion politics extends way beyond the abortion facilities. Planned Parenthood is not only a ubiquitous provider of abortions, but it's also a powerful lobbying group as well. Planned Parenthood supporters were a key part of the fight against the Trump administration's efforts in 2017 to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Their massive response defeated three separate bills and generated 3,000 events nationwide, 350,000 phone calls to Congress. Imagine, 350,000, gosh. 1.5 million petition signatures, 3,000 media clips, 300 letters to the editor, and 50 op-eds. Now, the purpose of this segment is not to attack Planned Parenthood, but to raise the questions that need to be addressed in a discussion about abortion, and they're a big player. Our country is now on the move regarding this issue. States are legislating in opposite directions. Some would say extreme directions. New York legislated in the direction of legalizing abortion at any time of pregnancy, up to and including at natural birth. But states like Iowa, Alabama, Louisiana, and Missouri are moving in the opposite direction towards limiting the legality of abortion to its absolute minimum and hoping for a successful challenge to Roe v. Wade in the Supreme Court. So when did abortion become health care? And when did abortion become the birth control of choice? And when did the inconvenience of pregnancy become a cogent reason for terminating an innocent life? When did our carelessness in our personal lives become an acceptable reason for ending the life of an unborn child that we created in a moment of bad decision-making. You know, the first oral contraceptive pill was approved by the FDA in 1960. It became widely available throughout North America and for the first time gave women unprecedented freedom to control when they choose to start a family. And it has become only one of many types of birth control now available over-the-counter at almost any pharmacy. But then, in 1973, the Supreme Court granted women a constitutional right to abortion in Roe v. Wade. Yet things may be changing. In the wake of the New York law that allows abortion at any time during pregnancy, a new survey conducted by the Marist Poll finds that an overwhelming majority of New York State residents oppose late-term abortion. In fact, a majority of New Yorkers would limit abortion to, at most, the first three months of pregnancy. The majority opposition to late-term abortion and support for abortion restrictions was strong even though most New Yorkers identify as pro-choice. The New York law may have just awakened a new voice for people who are pro-life. In just one month, Americans have made a sudden and dramatic shift away from the pro-choice positions. The New York law may just have awakened a new voice for people who are pro-life. Americans have made a sudden and dramatic shift away from the pro-choice positions and toward a pro-life stance. But still, the voice of the women's movement that supports abortion is strong and insistent. Remember, Democrat candidate for president Kirsten Gillibrand said that she would only nominate federal judges, quote, who will commit to upholding Roe v. Wade as settled law and protect women's reproductive rights, unquote. There's that phrase again. Cory Booker wrote an open letter to all men 
in which he said, quote, men, it's on us to listen, to speak out, and to take action. Not because women are our mothers, sisters, wives, or friends, but because women are people, and all people deserve to control their own bodies. He then went on to demonize the opposition, as if there were no compelling argument on the other side and opponents of abortion rights were the devil himself. He said, quote, These far-right attacks on women's rights must be understood as an attack on all our rights. But we also need to understand that these types of bills, and he's of course referring to Alabama and, and the other seven states who have passed heartbeat bills, but we also need to understand who these types of bills were designed to control, dehumanize, and criminalize, unquote. I wonder who he was talking about. I think some, somewhere in there, there is a subtle uh, attack on um, people who are guilty of, oh my gosh, racism. There's something very sinister in that argument. Bernie Sanders approached the issue in a different way. He reached out to the men attending his large rally in Asheville, North Carolina, and he said, This is not just a woman's issue. It's obviously a woman who goes to get an abortion. But this is an issue that men cannot separate themselves from. The last time I heard, it takes two to make a baby. Unquote. Very astute. He also promised to take on the new laws. He promised to, quote, fight those laws in every way possible, unquote. So here we are. The politicians have taken on the fight to protect a woman's right to an abortion. And the central argument has been that these laws interfere with women's, quote, reproductive rights and women's health care. But at the end of the day, this shouldn't be about politics. It should be about how we define life, and how we either cherish it or destroy it. The nation's opinions on abortion seem to be shifting. Maybe, people said, enough is enough. So as we move forward towards the 2020 elections, we may see this play out in surprising ways. We're going to take another short break, and then I will be back with a story and a look at how history may be repeating itself. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Over the last few weeks, I have spent a fair amount of time on this program talking about our dysfunctional Congress, 
and the lengths to which some of our politicians will go to widen the political divide that is destroying our country. But we've never really talked about the causes of this very dangerous trend. What has happened to America that now prevents us from solving our problems, from mending our fences, and, and focusing our energies on making America better, on making Americans happier? We all remember the videos of angry demonstrators in Portland, Oregon, standing only inches away from the faces of their perceived enemies and screaming expletives at them. The same four-letter words over and over and over again, as if all that screaming and all their repeated vulgarity would make any difference at all or change anything. What happened to our kids that those who take to the streets are so language-deprived that they can't even put a coherent sentence together and would rather hammer those they claim to hate with the unfettered rage that the screaming at them nose to nose with the worst invectives they can find and then repeating the same vulgar words over and over again? Do our children not have enough of the English language at their command to support their anger? Or have we failed to teach our children the English language altogether? Have we failed to teach them even basic manners? Have we failed to show them how to influence those who disagree with them and then maybe hope to change their mind on one issue or another? You know, when I lived in Israel, political discussion was always on the table. I can remember one Saturday afternoon when I was sitting with friends in Jerusalem. It was summer and the weather was beautiful. We sat on the balcony of one of my friend's apartment and we talked politics for several hours. There we were in this group of friends, two liberal-leaning journalists, a social worker, a mid-level government worker, and I. And we talked politics. We didn't agree on a lot of things, and we discussed a lot of issues. We discussed and we argued about just about everything. I'm sure we argued, and the talking must have become rather heated because at one point a neighbor knocked on the door and asked us to please keep it down. But in the end, after the Sabbath was over, we all went out for some of the street food, falafel, shawarma, steak and pita, yum. The point is that no matter how much we disagreed, when we were through arguing, we were able to still be friends and share a meal. I'm told that this is still true in Israel. It used to be true here, but it's not true anymore. And that, my friends, is a tragedy. I have friends who live on the West Coast who are die-hard liberal Democrats. We can talk about many things together because we've been friends for many years. But we never, and I mean never, talk politics. Not that I don't want to. I would love to know why they believe what they do. I want to understand why they reject so many of the things that I believe so strongly. And what are the reasons that support their opinions and drive their political positions? I want to know all this. But they won't talk to me. They don't want to know what I think or why I support the positions that I do. They are convinced that they're right 
and I'm wrong. And they won't share their own opinions or the reasons that they support them. Not with me, anyway. And this, I believe, is one of the most basic underlying reasons that our country is in the shape it's in. We have lost the art of civil discourse. We have instead learned to demonize everyone who does not share our opinions. And that has affected our federal government to such an extent that going for the jugular is an everyday event in Washington today. We talked before about how the Democrats will do virtually anything to bring down and destroy a duly elected president of the United States. And how, when they can't get to him, they will go after the people who report to him. And they want all of us to think that this is normal and right and good for the country. They're wrong on all three counts. It is not right. It is not good for the country. And it certainly is not normal. Not here. Not in America. We're supposed to be better than that. So if we buy into the argument that this behavior is normal, we've already lost the larger battle for our nation. What can we do to make this right? Can we make this right? Can we somehow interrupt this trajectory and bring Americans back to their senses? Can we somehow find a way to bridge the huge gap that their political antics have created and find a mutual willingness to identify a middle ground on which we can all meet? Then, maybe, we can have that discussion in which we don't hammer each other with verbal barbs, vulgarity, and slurs, but instead we find a common language that will enable a civil dialogue and lead, hopefully, to compromise. What do you think? In the past programs, I have asked you, my listeners, for your opinions, and some of you have written to me. I would like to ask you now to give some thought, not just to the problems we are facing, but to possible solutions that could help diffuse the anger and hostility that have infected our country and are keeping us from even having a conversation. What do we have to do to open the door to a real discussion about real issues? In a future program, we will discuss this subject in greater detail, and then we can drill down on some of the more substantial issues that divide this country. But for now, I'd really like to know what you think. Send me an email at ilana at americaoutloud.com. That's ilana, I-L-A-N-A, at americaoutloud.com. And tell me how you think we might solve this thorny and dangerous problem that America is facing right now. The rules are simple. Don't be facetious, don't be rude, and do be creative. I want to really hear some good ideas. I do look forward to hearing from you, and I will share some of your ideas with our other listeners on a future program. Let's start a conversation. When I first introduced my podcast, I said, quote, Life is a series of never-ending stories. My job, as I see it, is to tell these stories as I see them, as I understand them, and in a way that will give some clarity to this complicated and perplexing world. 
So now I'd like to tell you a story that tells a message of loyalty and bravery and, and a kind of honor that is too rarely seen these days. It's a story of two men who saved a president's life, both of them on the same day, but in very different ways. And with a kind of courage and honor that is rare. Altogether, the day was full of heroes. The story begins on March 30th, 1981, when President Ronald Reagan and three others were shot and wounded by John Hinckley Jr. outside the Washington Hilton Hotel. Although the president was not directly hit by any of the six bullets that came from Hinckley's gun, one of the bullets ricocheted off the side of the president's armored car and hit Reagan in the back. It grazed a rib and lodged in his lung less than an inch from his heart. Reagan was immediately pushed into his limousine by special agent in charge Jerry Parr. The plan was to take Reagan back to the White House, but when he began to cough up blood, Agent Parr took command and ordered the driver to change course and take them to George Washington University Hospital. Parr's two action, to push the president unceremoniously into the limousine to avoid further injury, and his decision to change the route and go directly to the hospital, no doubt saved Reagan's life. It took them only four minutes to get to the hospital. But when they got there, the stretcher that Parr had ordered was not there. So Reagan, at 70 years old and shot, got out of the limousine and walked unassisted into the hospital until his breathing became difficult and his knees buckled. In less than an hour, he was prepped for surgery. When his wife, Nancy, arrived at the hospital, <laughs> he famously told her, I forgot to duck. And then, although he had lost a great deal of blood, his surgeon, Dr. Joseph Giordano, who was head of the hospital's trauma team, recalled that as the president was being moved from the stretcher to the operating table, he looked around and said, Please tell me you're all Republicans. And as Reagan later recalled, Dr. Giordano, who was a liberal Democrat, said, Today, Mr. President, we are all Republicans. One more interesting note on Special Agent Jerry Parr. In 1939, when he was only nine years old, his father took him to see a movie. The movie was Code of the Secret Service and little Jerry was hooked. He dreamed of becoming a Secret Service agent, and when he grew up, that's what he did in 1962. In 1981, he called President Reagan the agent of his own destiny, because the hero of that movie, who inspired him to become the Secret Service agent who saved the president, was the actor Ronald Reagan. Life is full of surprises. Reagan's life was saved twice that day. The story reminds me that the honor shown by the doctor might be hard to find in today's political crisis. And yet the innate goodness in people is far from gone. As I was going through this week's news, I was struck by a story that made me realize we have a lot of work to do to repair the damage that has been done to our children over the last 50 years or so.
I'm talking about how we have convinced them that they are entitled to receive all the benefits of life in America that we, their parents and grandparents, worked so hard to achieve. It's mind-boggling, really, that we didn't have the sense to know that when our children were taught that everyone wins, that all you have to do is show up and you get a prize, that we are all the same and that life is fair, we are eventually going to have a problem. Because none of the above is true. And if that is what we have allowed our children to be taught in school, we have failed them. The biggest lie is that life is fair. It is not. It never was. It is full of tragedy and death and catastrophe and things that happen that we least expect, some good, some bad, and so forth. And something happens to our neighbor that doesn't happen to us. But it's not fair. It just is what it is. And if our children grow up to be adults who expect that it will be fair, they will have awful, awful adulthoods. The second lie is that we are all the same and that we are all entitled to be winners. Uh-uh. Sorry, kids. Life just isn't like that. If you don't learn to compete when you are growing up, you're going to have a much harder time making it as an adult in the real world. If you got into college because of special policies that make allowances for your lack of education or your family's poverty, and if you've taken softcore courses that support your liberal worldview but missed out on the hardcore education that you need to get ahead, well, you'll not be prepared to get the job that can help you have the career that will propel you forward so that you, too, can build your own American dream. So your so-called college education didn't prepare you for that, did it? During this last week, billionaire Robert Smith, who was the founder of Vista Equity Partners and who became the wealthiest black man in America, gave the commencement speech to the 396 graduates at the all-male, historically black Morehouse College in Atlanta. He told the graduating class, that his family would set up a fund that would essentially wipe out all of their student loans. Needless to say, every graduating student received an enormous leg up in the next stage of his adult life, ready to face the world without the huge burden of student loan debt hanging over his head. Now, on the same day that Robert Smith gave Morehouse College's graduating students a windfall, Billionaire Oprah Winfrey also gave a commencement speech, this one to graduates of Colorado College, a small liberal arts college in Colorado Springs with a graduating class of almost 300. In her address, she told them that small steps can lead to big accomplishments and gave each graduate a copy of her book, The Path Made Clear. The next day, the following message was posted on Instagram. It said that instead of giving graduates her latest book, she, quote, should have paid off their student debt, unquote. Now this is the voice of the entitled, and may I say spoiled, product of our liberal education system. The one who is looking for handouts that are supposed to be his or her entitlements. 
Only wait, is this a student who took a loan, knowing it would have to be paid back, and now has to face the responsibility of doing just that? You mean you want to hold him or her accountable? Why should any students think that just because the huge generosity of one man made the way easy for some 400 graduates, that they too are entitled to the same relief? Guess what? They're not. So as I watched my own children grow and saw the nature of education change dramatically, from arithmetic to new math to common core math standards, teaching feel-good courses like revised histories that never happened, and replacing civics with gender identity classes and literature with self-expression. These changes demonstrated the argument that altering the basics of education to accommodate an increasingly feel-good educational system based on radical liberal ideology simply doesn't work. And it deprives our kids of the basic tools they need to succeed in the world. We need to be teaching our kids to function in the real world. And that is a deep and different subject that we can talk about another time. The unrest on our college campuses that we see today are, at least in part, a direct result of how we have failed to teach our children the real rules of life that could have helped them be productive members of society instead of frustrated and destructive demonstrators on our streets and college campuses. America is, with all its problems, a great place to live, and I'm glad and grateful to be living here and playing even a small part in this great experiment that is still going on after more than 240 years. My great hope is that we can keep America safe and strong so that it will be as wonderful a place to live for my children and my grandchildren as it has been for me. Well, that's it for today, my friends. Thank you so much for spending this hour with me. I've enjoyed it, and I hope you have too, and I hope to see you again next week. In the meantime, have a good week and stay safe. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I am Alana Friedman, and this has been The Friedman Report. Report.